0: Fill in space.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what we do in, in general, right?
0: I think I'm reading this part about the with the New York Times, right? The Bowie's 80s midlife crisis.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Okay,
0: I'll have that.
1: Prepared. <laughs> that's, that's an amazing accent. <laughs> Where did that come Pre- from? <laughs> prepared. I've been working on
0: my rolling R's.
1: <laughs> okay, can you do that the whole time? No. Ooh.
0: Welcome to the Bowie Book Club. I'm Christian
1: and I'm Greg.
0: And uh, we've had a two-person book club for some years.
1: Tenish, ten about. years.
0: And we've read a lot of books. Sometimes we talked about them
1: most of the time, we just got drunk and gossiped.
0: <laughs> so uh, in honor of David Bowie and his inspirational list of one hundred influential books, we got our act together, yeah. And we are reading through Bowie's list in no sensible order,
1: nonsensical order.
0: And we're making wild speculation on what the book's meant to Bowie.
1: There we go. I, I think we've got uh, something special this week, or this episode. Um, do you want to introduce our first surprise of the evening?
0: Skype noise. <laughs> <laughs> so today we are joined by Sophie Brookover. Sophie?
2: Hey guys, how are you? Good, good.
0: How are you doing? Good, good. I'm doing all right. That's
2: good,
1: that's good.
0: So, Sophie Brookover, who also tweets as Sophie Biblio, is the one half of the two bossy dames, an e-newsletter that she curates with Margaret H. Willison. And, as Greg pointed out to me earlier, they... Are some of the most wonderful
1: curators of gifts, yeah, out the, there. The fantastic gift action!
2: Oh, thank you, guys. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm clutching my my hand to my bosom in, in gratitude right now.
1: And a re- thank really, you. Really fun read. I'm really glad I subscribed. Lots of good stuff there.
0: I first uh, encountered Sophie actually on uh, the Overdue podcast, uh, where they were wow. discussing flowers in the attic. <laughs> wow.
2: The creepy, creepy the, the, flowers in the, the attic.
1: Creepiest thing you could find at any grocery
2: store in the '80s. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Although my my favorite, and by favorite I mean the most bonkers, V.C. Andrews of the of the like six or seven books that she wrote before she died, and that, now they're all ghostwritten by a dude. But um, <laughs> her the her last original work um, is definitely her craziest, and that is My Sweet Audrina, which if you ever have the opportunity to read. I encourage you to do it, just to get a taste of that in bananas, Southern Gothic, <laughs> incestual horror. Wow. Oh, we're both
0: writing it down right now. So,
2: so
1: BC Andrews deep
2: cuts. <laughs> yeah. That's oh, good. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's her one standalone. Most of what she wrote were were um, series,
0: and like long, long drawn out series. Yes. Yes.
2: So- they're sagas, really. Yes. Yes. Sagas. My sweet Adrina is the one standalone, and it is just stuffed top to bottom with a lot, just a lot of plot, a lot of stuff. Wow, oh, I
1: I kind of wish we were reading that for <laughs> this episode, but I I think we yes. have something that's also kind of stuffed with things. Yes, um,
0: stuffed with capers. Yeah,
1: maybe maybe not <laughs> gothic, but but has its share of horrific elements, I guess. Yeah. So this share of unintentional comedy or intentional comedy, <laughs> both. Yeah.
0: So yeah, it this both. this time we are reading Wonder Boys by Michael Chabon, and uh, we were chatting earlier with Sophie that Greg and I didn't have previous encounters with Wonder Boys this is my first read
1: yep me too i think we had both read uh the adventures of cavalier and clay and 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 loved it um but yeah this is my first read for wonder boys um but sophie I, i think this is a book that you you know and love
2: oh yes yes this is on like in my goodreads it's definitely on my favorites of all time shelf um and i just i love how how loose it is um The publishing history of the book is that he was supposed to be finishing um, the follow-up to Mysteries of Pittsburgh and was just really stalled out on it. And without telling his agent or his editor, he kind of set it aside and wrote this book instead. Um, And and it just has a real sort of shambling looseness that I find very appealing, even though it's also – like perfectly plotted and very symmetrical, you know, but um, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a wackier, it's the wackier side of Shabin. Um, Yeah. So I have read this book, I don't know, four or five times over the years. I first encountered it at my public library. What's your public library? uh, (laughs) My public library was the Haddonfield Public Library in Haddonfield, New Jersey. Um, shout out hometown. New Jersey, yeah. yeah! Shout out New Jersey, hometown what? of uh, Harry from When Harry Met Sally. Oh, ah. <laughs> yes. What, what, um, what exit is that? That is, it's between exits three and four of the turnpike. Yeah, <laughs> so near a, a suburb of Philadelphia. That's gotcha. um, yeah. So I, the book came out when I was in high school, and I saw it on the new bookshelf, and I knew his name because my parents subscribed to like three daily newspapers and one of them was the new york times and i was one of those kids who read the new york times book review shout out to the kids who read the new york times <laughs> 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 so yeah so it was a, it was a uh, very, I great i think that's the first time met
1: <laughs> <laughs> no it was a thing man i'm, yeah. I'm in that club
2: <laughs> yeah we need to get like varsity jackets yeah.
1: um, and then get beat up by the <laughs> greasers <laughs>
2: Yeah, so, um, or just, like, sneak off, like, in a really wily way. Just, just um, wait till I review your work. Yeah, so, um, yes, this was on the, uh, on the new bookshelf at my library, and I, I recognized his name, and um, I read the jacket copy. Shout out to jacket copywriters. Yes. And um, I just thought, oh, well, this looks charming, so I put it on my stack, And I took it home and I can't remember whether it was like the first one I read, but let's say that it was. And uh, I just loved it. I thought it was funny and warm and sad and funny again. (laughs) And I really I just enjoyed the plot. And I loved reading about this guy who was, you know, clearly very successful in a bunch of domains of his life while also being a complete disaster. (laughs) Such a mess, otherwise. Yeah, Yeah. it's a complete, complete mess. And I just found it super enjoyable. And I've gone on to read um, not all of the rest of his books, but a bunch of them. And um, this one, I think, is extremely rich and holds a really important place in his personal mythology as a writer, which we'll get into later. But I think that's... Very, I mean, very interesting, and that's part of my wild speculation as to its appeal for David Bowie.
0: It's almost a, a bit of a spoiler to know that Michael Chabon himself was working on a different book that he just couldn't finish when he was writing this. It, yeah, because yeah, that's that's a bit. What's going on? Right, right. That's, in, that's pretty part of that. much. Yeah, <laughs> and I had confessed earlier that I myself avoid reading books where writers are writing yeah, about, about writing. writing yeah um but i was so charmed by the the sort of three stooges well one stooge i guess antics <laughs> of, of this story
1: it's it's like he's he's constantly like the main character is constantly looking for someone to poke in the eyes <laughs> and not finding anybody
2: so then he just pokes himself in yeah, the exactly. eye. <laughs> it's
1: like well i'm the yeah. stooge here i guess
2: yeah, yeah no, nobody else is willing to join in his gag so he sort of has to make the scene keep going right and 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 i think the part of the book that that I,
1: i really enjoyed is that he was surrounded by such interesting like strong and not messy characters in some ways like the women in his life are all very they all kind of know what they want but yet they put up with this sort of shambling dude in a robe and actually saying dude makes me think that this is a very big lebowski kind of um It it, it feels really similar in some ways to the Big Lebowski, you know, down to the that both characters wear a a kind of really gnarly looking robe through through big chunks of the of the book or or the movie. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, the the robe features in a bunch of scenes in the book and would now be a good time to read a description of the robe.
0: Yeah. It's like his his magical talesman.
2: (laughs) Okay. Yes. Well, yeah. Okay. So. Let's see where I would like it to begin. Okay. Um, so this is the morning after the first evening. You know, we haven't even talked about who the main character is. I think we're oh, kind yeah. of assuming. That's true. <laughs> everyone's like, everyone's read this, of course. <laughs> sure. Or seen the movie. Do you want me to set it up real quick? Yeah, give a little context. Okay. So this is a book about a man named Grady Tripp, who is or the dude. professor. The, or the dude. Take your pick. <laughs> Um, although I feel like the dude definitely peaked in college with the Port Huron statement. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gr- Gr- Grady, Grady just doing a little Grady's, better. <laughs> a, little, a little. But we are talking about some slim margins here. Um, so Grady has been the fairly successful author of a couple of books. He is trying and failing to finish this magnum opus called Wonder Boys. Um, he's a creative writing professor at an unnamed university in Pittsburgh, which I think we're supposed to think is, is either Pitt or Carnegie Mellon. Um, and, and he doesn't
0: know he's failing yet. He's diligently driving ahead in this book.
2: He he is, but I think the, the signs are there. The fact yeah. that the manuscript is like 2000 pages yeah. <laughs> and he's only on page four and a half of his nine page outline, <laughs> which he wrote six years ago. I, I feel like, for the reader with eyes to see, <laughs> there's a lot. There's, there's a
1: lot of turn back on that road.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, lots of doubling back. So, um, yeah. So he's he's been successful, and he has this really grand idea. And the problem is not finding things to write about. If anything, he has too many things to write about, and too many details that he wants to share. And he, he has censored
0: his editor with the use. Of several intoxicants. <laughs>
2: yes, yes. Yeah, heavily, heavily reliant on pot. Um, and so his his actual editor from his publishing house has come to town um, ostensibly to participate in this big literary festival that the college holds every year. Um, but actually to sort of back Grady into a corner and make him fork over the completed manuscript, which Grady keeps assuring him is, Oh yes, absolutely. I'm within about 20 pages. No problem. I'm getting it done. I'm getting it done. It's really the the home stretch, but the reader knows the truth. It's like a writer's
0: intervention.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, meanwhile, his third marriage is falling apart. His wife has just left him. His lover who is, Um, the chancellor of the college, um, tells him she's pregnant and he has, he's been insufficiently supportive of the messy, but promising work of one of the writers in his, uh, short story workshop, James Lear. And James shows up at this party at the chancellor's house holding a fancy lady's gun, a very small, very... <laughs> yeah, mother-of-pearl-handled, handled purse size, ladies' pistol. And, um... and it, it really
0: is the friendship that starts there between this young man, James, and Grady that I think sets the ball rolling for this like t- adventure caper of Grady coming to terms with, with his image of himself in a way and and whether or not he's a success and
1: and 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 not not to give anything away but the 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 sort of like the garbage scow like heads down a tidal wave for in a very amusing way for most of the book (laughs) after being kicked off (laughs) at at that party
0: you just feel like no stop stop (laughs) what you're doing (laughs)
2: This yeah, everybody. Well. No, yeah, everybody needs to go home and take a shower and sleep for a couple of hours. <laughs> wake up, have some strong coffee, and then talk about stuff.
0: But instead, yeah. they start piling stuff into the trunk of a car.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. They definitely make some different choices. <laughs> very diplomatic. Uh, start, starting with uh, Grady deciding to show James um, this special cork and cedar lined closet of memorabilia that um sarah the chancellor's husband walter owns um the prize piece of he's a collector of uh yankees memorabilia and he's super duper into joe dimaggio and so he's spent an untold sum of money on this black satin ermine collared jacket that Marilyn Monroe was wearing on the day that she and DiMaggio got married. And because James is obsessed with old Hollywood, Grady, as like a gesture of, um, apology and friendship says, you know, let, let me show you this thing. And James knows what it is. Um, there's a scuffle involving <laughs> Walter's dog. who uh, very, Grady, Very angry dog. Yeah. Super angry dog. And uh the blind and watchman and, and, yep yep who who is onto Grady and hates him and um so he bites Grady's ankle and uh and james shoots the dog and, and generally
1: I'm against dogs getting hurt in in movies or books, but this dog I don't know like he, he kind of like maybe wounding him or, or or just incapacitating him would have been yeah
2: like a little clout over the head maybe yeah. just to come out it would have been acceptable it didn't need to go the way it did <laughs> it but did. but
1: yet it did that that's the but motto of the book it didn't need to go this way
0: that yeah, trunk basically. needed more things in it
2: it did right the trunk uh, we should mention already has in it an enormous honey skin encased tuba <laughs> which doesn't belong, belong to anyone so- it belongs to Antonia Sloviak, who oh. is a minor character who Terry Crabtree, um, the trips editor, gets involved with on his flight from New York to Pittsburgh. And, oh no, wait, that, the, I think the case goes in later. But anyway, a lot of, <laughs> a strange assemblage of objects yep. Yep. that you wouldn't think like, oh, let's put these things together in the trunk of a car.
0: And we can't they spoil there. all the capers of, of no. how yeah, how yeah. it. No, it's like the reading rainbow version.
2: Like, yeah, you don't have to take our word for it. Just you... know that the plot is <laughs> dense and, and rich and, and wacky, and, and kind of like
1: the Three Stooges. Yeah, and there are many moments where you're like, "How did they get that in the trunk?" <laughs> <laughs> you you do say that several times throughout.
2: the yes. course of the book. Yes, they sure don't make them like they used to up there. <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: But there are these kind of magic items, so, I I mean... These
1: talismanic things, the, like the robe. Yeah,
0: the um, Marilyn Monroe's jacket is definitely one, but I think my favorite is that robe, this robe that serves this bizarre function for Grady.
1: Yeah, yeah. and Sophie, do you, do you want to read the description of it?
2: Yes, absolutely. So, um, the the morning after this caper of which shooting the dog is almost the least of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Grady, Grady has somehow managed to get home and sleep for a little while. He wakes up and he, he pukes in the toilet he says, then I got up. I put on my eyeglasses, stepped into my moccasins and tied on my lucky bathrobe, which made me feel somewhat better. Like most beloved items of clothing, this robe had once belonged to somebody else. I'd come upon it years ago, hanging in the upstairs closet of a beach house in Gearhart, Oregon, that Eva B. and I, that's a previous wife, and I rented for a summer from a Portland family named Knopfelmacher. It was an, an enormous white chenille number, threadbare at the elbows, with pink and red arrangements of embroidered geraniums on the pockets, and I didn't have too much doubt that it had been Mrs. Knopfelmacher's. It had been since become impossible for me to write wearing anything else. In one of its pockets, I now found, to my delight, the charred half of a roach and a book of El Producto matches. I stood at the bedroom window, looking east, smoking the roach down to the last particle of ash and watching the sky for a hint of daylight."
1: That's beautiful and so shambolic at the yeah. same time.
2: Yes.
0: And I do love those sort of magic elements of of habit or, you know, you you believe that you need it. I mean, certainly the dude in the Big Lebowski had some fond feelings for his robe and that rug.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And and the way that that Grady relies on weed is a talismanic kind of thing too. Is something that he does, you know, at some point later in the book, at least, attempt to dispense with. Um, so th- there is this idea of writing as magic. Um,
0: and I do, I like, I like the description of the robe because, as we were talking about before, there is this this huge, funny, bumbling caper that's going on the whole time that kind of feeds you. But underneath that is this, this kind of profound isolation and sadness, yeah. which that robe and his connection to it kind of
2: show in a way. Yeah. he Well, Grady doesn't seem to be able to do his own own stuff in a lot of ways like
0: yeah he's
2: he's he's orphaned and um you know he says specifically at one point I was when I was looking for the quote about the bathrobe I came across a line about how he had basically married into his third wife Emily's family in large part because he just really loved the feeling of being part of a family. And the yeah. scene yeah.
0: with that family is it, one of my it, favorite yeah, in the book. That's
2: definitely yeah. one of my favorite parts of the book for sure. Yeah. Mine too. Mine too. It's wonderful. There's for people who haven't read the book, there's a, he goes to see his soon to be ex-wife's family um, because word fest, which is the literary festival at his college is taking place over the same weekend that Passover begins. And, um, Emily, his wife's father, specifically invites him and almost begs him to attend. And so with so, partly to avoid facing reality at school with the dead dog and answering, Sarah's, and the- uh, <laughs> answering Sarah's rather important question as to whether he wants to, like, continue his relationship with her and be an actual father to their child. He instead goes to see about Emily. Um,
0: and well, he has, does he, he, he me, or but, does he well, go to
2: be with the family? I think he really goes to be with the family, but he's telling himself that like, yeah. right, right. that he's, that he's going to, you know, be honest with her and tell her what's going on. You know, he knows that he needs to be the one to tell her. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> None of that goes as planned, though. Like like,
1: like everything else with this book, no, <laughs> yeah, like it does not go as planned.
2: Not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah. And that, that whole scene is just, all of it is so sad. Like, he knows, he knows something that they don't know. He knows a bunch of things that they don't know. And um, his love for them and their affection for him really comes through. And, you know, they're not a perfect family, but they are very loving. Yeah, yeah, and that is something that has really been missing in his life, and he's, you know, as he's there at that cedar, he's sort of, sort of starting to mourn that loss.
0: And I I've thought a lot about how Grady has kind of these these polars um, that he's juggling, where he has this family that he loves, and and he thinks that he could be a part of. Maybe he's never had it. But he's really chased and he brings up pretty often this image of this former writer that he knew, um, Albert Vetch,
1: Yeah. Um, oh, the, yeah the, who the, the, lived like in the, the house. Lovecraftian writer.
0: Yeah. He was a science fiction pulp writer who, who got a lot of fame, but he was a lodger in his house as a child. And... There's something about that image that just stays with him as this isolated, lonely man that almost prevents him from trying for this other thing, this family, whether it be with his third wife's family or with Sarah starting a new family with a child and
1: and and there's a sense that like he's trying to figure out how to connect to other people like James or The young student. Yeah, the the young student or or Emily and her family. Not feeling a real connection, or not really understanding what his connection to them is, or to to his lover, or to his agent, or, or sorry, his editor, or really to anybody, just uh, to to the lodger in his house, Hannah, who he he cares about in some ways, and it seems like she cares about him. Um, but, well, he cares about her, and um, in, in 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 a certain way, let's say he <laughs> but, wants to
0: see what's under those
1: boots. Yeah. Yeah, he he has very yes. particular, very particular asks of her. Um, but there, but there's a sense of like him just kind of fumbling at like how do I actually like connect to somebody and not really being able to find how to
2: do that.
0: And that ghost of this writer yeah, sort of like, sitting over him, which I think
2: you talked about Sophie earlier. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of Shaban's history as a writer. So the. The writer's real name was Albert Vetch, but he published these, like, Lovecraftian stories um, as August Van Zorn, and that's um, – he he plays a role not only in Grady's development as a writer, but also in his relationship with Crabtree, which I'm not going to get into any further, but it's sort of like <laughs> oh, the linchpin <Lynch>. yeah. <laughs> the, the of their uh, – and the beginning of their friendship. And how they become um, writer and editor – and, exactly, uh, exactly. And then um, there's a story in Shabin's um, short story collection, Werewolves in Their Youth, that uh, is written under the name of Van Zorn. And then on his website for a long time, it's not there anymore. He's um, scrubbed it so that you can't even find it on the Wayback Machine. Man! But a, I know, I know. For a long time he had compiled this – there was on his website a a really comprehensive like annotated bibliography for Van Zorn that was compiled by a fictional literary scholar known as Leon Chaim Bach, which is an anagram of Michael Chabon. Aha! (laughs) (laughs) And um, so the whole – there's all these layers where he's created – this fictional author, and then he's created another fictional author who's a scholar of the work of the fictional author. Oh, man! (laughs) And then also written, gone to the lengths of writing a short story under the name of the fictional author that he invented, and then put it in one of his own short story collections.
0: Wasn't that like a Kurt Vonnegut Jr. style? Like with his, um, he had that... Uh, I can't remember his name.
1: Oh, um, not Billy Pilgrim.
0: Kil- Kilgore Trout. Trout? Oh, oh, Kilgore Trout. Trout. Yes. Breakfast right, yes. 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 of champions. It. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but, it, but it also feels like how a lot of like what, what James, the young writer in the book, did with like fabricating his own history. Like there are several layers of lies in there. Yes. But
2: some of them feel true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True enough. And, and weirdly, one of the key things that James makes up about his background is this horrible story that the man who is his father is also his grandfather. And then that's echoed in Grady's Unfinishable Wonder Boys by um, the rape of the, the horrible patriarch rapes the wife of oh. one of his own sons coming back to V.C. Andrews. Yes. Oh, man.
0: Oh, man.
1: (laughs) I knew it'd tie in somehow.
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah, so there's this, there's all these layers and connections. And I, after I finished reading this book, I started to wonder, like, so the title of the book is also the title of Grady's book. But You can, and then in in the movie, like they sort of underline it and put an exclamation point at the end of it, where they actually have Michael Douglas, who plays Grady, um, sort of whisper reverently, "Wonder Boys," when um, when James encounters a particular success at the end of the book. Mm. Um, But like the three of them, Crabtree, Trip, and James. Like, they're, they're, they are kind of Wonder Boys, but they're also a complete mess, just Which, like the manuscript of Wonder Boys. Yeah, Which I yeah. think
0: is what the Wonder Boys are, like these people who've had these success. Like, James is going towards it, where
1: he's, Grady he's on one part of is coming away trajectory. from it, where yeah. you have yeah. this
0: immense success that feels almost artificial, maybe? And then it then, like, the bottom falls out of it, and then you find yourself struggling in this like the sophomoric dilemma of trying to make the next thing yeah
1: yeah and i think like and since yeah i am not sure if we want to go to start tying it to like what bowie thought of it the book
0: it does connect here with the idea of doppelgangers and yeah yeah
1: you know. and i think bowie's obsession with with success and fame and, and
0: recreating himself
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah, we. I had read a piece in the New York Times, um, which I think was published back in 1998 when he was talking about his art collection, David Bowie. And he said, I felt very dissatisfied with myself as a musician during a lot of the 80s, the last part of the 80s. I was going through my middle age crisis smack on cue. Soon as I hit 40, it all went wrong. When I hit 1987, it just seemed that nothing worked for me musically. I'd lost the plot. It really felt bad. I felt awful with myself as an artist. And then during the very early 90s, I found my way slowly back into music again. Now in music, I feel fulfilled. Hopefully not self-satisfied by what I'm doing.
1: And you can kind of see a similar path with, with Grady towards the end of the book where maybe he is... You know, he loses the plot entirely, like, like literally. He, he loses it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but then he does come back to something, you know, or at least there's a hint of like a more sustainable way of being an artist or, or being a writer, a more sustainable way of being a human in the world. And, and Bowie had the same sort of sort of thing in his life. Um, he, I, he didn't become as much of a stooge at least not that not that we know of. But. right not publicly at least yeah. his persona was a little cooler
0: he had a good grasp grasp on his uh, his doubles and
1: doppelgangers
2: yeah. yes
1: the song I, I think um i think yeah maybe i i, I don't uh, Sophie, you had some theories about what Bowie thought about Wonder Boys? I'm not sure if you want to you want to elucidate them, or should we jump to the big
2: reveal? <laughs> um, well, I think let's Our jump to the reveal, and then maybe we can okay. loop back and sort of use that as a lens. Okay, okay, that sounds good.
0: So every time we spend some time thinking about the book and thinking about what it meant to Bowie, and making wild speculation, and then we also try to decide what song we think fits the the book that we're reading. And we we went back and forth on a couple. Yeah. Um,
1: like like yeah, we we talked to like the three of us talked last week and we're yeah. kind of going back and forth on a couple songs. And we
0: thought of some from Ziggy Stardust or from Lowe or Aladdin Sane. But then one day I just thought maybe maybe we should just ask Michael Shaven what Song he thinks connects to Wonder Boys.
1: So, did you like go to his house or something? <laughs> yeah, I'm
0: just like, hi, Michael. <laughs> hey, Mikey. <laughs> uh, I, I talked to his publicist and I, I explained uh, what, what was going on. And I asked if we could get in touch with, with Michael Shabin and just ask him, you know, if, if he thought about Wonder Boys, the book that he wrote, and if he thought about Bowie and Bowie's list of of songs did he have any correlations himself and he got back immediately like within 5 minutes it wow. was the quickest response oh i've God. ever gotten and and he just said
1: Bewley brothers that's the song i would choose and and it makes i mean just it makes sense without or it makes sense to me and i don't know why it makes sense to me it just does yeah just at this visceral
2: oh yes of course totally yeah yeah
0: yeah. that's the song and i don't think i would have thought about it before no but um it was great i was i was reading this little blurb that i guess was in strange fashion fascinations which is a book on david bowie and it said bowie himself supposedly told producer ken scott that buley brothers was a track for the american market because the Americans always like to read things into things, even though the <laughs> lyrics make absolutely no sense. I, I
1: think that describes, can that be like our bumper sticker? Like the <laughs> Bowie Book Club, we read things into other things.
0: <laughs> the American market, we read things <laughs> into things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have much of a familiarity with this song. Do you guys?
1: in, in- I mean, listening to it again, I'm like, oh my God, this song is amazing. But yeah, yeah, it wasn't it, it wouldn't have been a song I would have picked up right, right away.
2: Yeah. yeah, it was not top of mind for me. But I have listened to it like ten times since we had that email. Exchange. Totally. <laughs> totally. And and it's such a weird, weird song. Like
0: <laughs> now the we get...
2: are super elliptical. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, now I think we get to there's... have like
0: double double speculation. Like what did it mean to Bowie? What did this song mean to Michael Shaven?
2: So we yeah, can read I mean, into
1: four times as many things.
2: Yeah. It's just like all these mirrors upon mirrors. Um, yeah. The, the lyrics are very, very strange. You know, you can read Bewley as kind of a, you know, almost a sound alike for Bowie, yeah. which
1: I think
2: yeah. is interesting. And... Um, I think when he, he reflected on it later in life, he said he thought he could see that, that it was sort of somewhat tangentially, like, about... Um, he had a, a very strained relationship with his half-brother.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, and,
2: hey, yeah. Who, who had schizophrenia. Yeah, And, yep. and like, I feel like that sort of fractured viewpoint on the world is definitely, definitely in this song. Like, you can really see that and hear it. Um, there's some really interesting wordplay, which is definitely something I associate with Shabin. Like I often have to stop what I'm reading and look something up because he, mm-hmm. he has just this, you know, this lavish, extravagant vocabulary. And, um, I feel like there's something of that in these lyrics. Um, like the, the couplet, he could be dead. He could be not, he could be you. He's chameleon, comedian, Corinthian and caricature, there's that was just exactly a, the lines yeah, I was yeah, going to point out. <laughs> yeah, it's just exuberant. It's, you know, if it were anyone else, I would say, oh, what a show off. But <laughs> it, it's it's almost as if there was, it's almost as if it's effortless. Like he didn't really have to try that just appeared. And, and it's a
1: very serious song in some ways. But it's also a very silly song, and it manages to balance both of them in a way that this book does as well. Oh yeah, where where there's this sadness underneath, or this there's there's something going on underneath, but it's it's almost
0: there's also a nonsensical. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. it's expressing it through this nonsense, or or something that at first glance seems nonsensical, and is yeah. funny in some ways. Like what's the line about being like I'm hungry for my gravy, which is
2: in, in the sped up voice. It's just yes. creepy and and weird. <laughs> it's it is super creepy and it's not like that's not Bowie's normal accent. Like yeah. he had cer- certainly an identifiably London accent, yeah. but not not a Cockney accent. And no,
1: no.
2: this seems very deliberate. And prior to that, there's this real, as in Wonder Boys, there's a real edge of sadness yeah and and sort of like a like an emotional dysphoria Hmm. just like sort of staggering around and not quite able to you know express plainly what he's feeling you know sort of just coming at it from these odd obtuse angles constantly
0: there's a scene there's a scene at the end of wonder boys where he's where grady is walking in the rain carrying the tuba
1: oh my and god yes and that perfectly blends it it's like the silliest thing yeah <laughs> but it's also really sad
0: yeah i think that that yeah it's this encapsulation of like this is ridiculous you're walking in the rain with a tuba and it's also yeah really heavy
1: and, and you really yeah. feel for him, but you also feel like you
2: idiot <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You made this bed. Now, now you are rolling around in it. And that's exactly the consequences you deserve for the bad choices that you've made. But
1: okay. Okay. I'll give you a cup of coffee. Come
2: on. Right. 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 Come on. It'll be all right. It'll be okay. And I'm uh, just looking back at um, a quote that, that Christiane had pulled out further to the thing about Americans liking to read things into things. And, um he talked about not knowing how to interpret the lyric um, other than to suggest that there are layers of ghosts within it. And he referred to it as a palimpsest, which I think Wonder Boys is too. Like you've got the, you know, the foundational layer of it being the book that he wrote to sort of exercise the demons of the book that he was unable to finish. Mm -hmm. And then he put that in as a plot point and then he's overlaid that with, like his fascination with genre fiction, yeah, and um, you know, he he adds, he puts his own sexual ambivalence into James Lear, and
0: yeah,
2: there's just all these, you know, there's the layers upon layers of emotional stuff and plot stuff and thematic stuff, and and then people telling lies about what their characters really
1: are. So yeah, there's the layer, the stories that they they're telling. Those are additional like things that need to be scrubbed away to get to the heart of it. Yeah.
2: So I think they're a perfectly matched pair. Yeah. 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 It did
0: redeem for me the book of the writer writing about writing.
1: It, it, and and Chabon
2: thanks you. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know Flix, he's, he's somewhere and just all of a sudden he's had a, sort of like a little glow. Oh. Uh, so, hey, there's something really right in the world right now. I wonder what that could be. It's like the opposite of the sensation where someone's walking across your grave and yeah. said it's, oh, like someone says that my book is actually okay after
1: all. And, and, somewhere, and then
2: the
0: Bewley Brothers plays in his
1: head.
2: <laughs> That's right. And he's not sure why.
1: And somewhere why. a shaban gets his wings. <laughs> That's right. So, I, I think, I think, I can't think of anything better to do than roll the Bewley Brothers
0: and, and do somehow Photoshop a picture of Michael Shaven with wings. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'll see if I can get that into show notes. Definitely. That's a priority. Cool. So uh, <laughs> so Sophie, do you, um, is there a way that people can can get a hold of you, Two Bossy Dames, or on Twitter? How do people get to read the cool stuff that you're
2: doing? Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, I would say... You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sophie Biblio, S-O-P-H-I-E-B-I-B-L-I-O. And um, you can subscribe to Two Bossy Dames. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Two Bossy Dames, all spelled out. And And I highly um,
0: recommend it.
2: Uh, Thank you. Oh, thank you, guys. (laughs) Um, You can subscribe to the newsletter if, um, you know, this kind of uh, divergent and um, (laughs) wildly digressive conversation about popular culture is your jam it, and uh, you can do that. We're at tinyletter.com slash two bossy Danes
0: plus awesome gift curation.
2: Yes. If, if you, if you like animations, then th- that's the place to go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's one of our, that's a thing that we really enjoy doing in it. And we like, I feel like that's kind of the special sauce of the newsletter. So oh, totally. That's, that's a, that's a thing I learned from Margaret and I'm so glad I did. Very important life skill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, cool. Thank you. Thank you for talking with us. It's been super fun. Um, Thank uh, you. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight.
0: Yeah. Thanks for spreading the love of Shabin and Bowie.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. That's like two fabulous tapes that go great together. Yeah.
1: Okay. So that's the end.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Make sure to uh, find us on the web at bowiebookclub.com.
1: And you can follow us on Twitter at Bowie Book Pod.
0: Or on Facebook at Bowie Book Club.
1: And uh, thank you to all the people who have followed us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, it'd be great if you could review us in the iTunes Store because that means that um, Tim Cook comes down from a cloud and gives us money or something like that.
0: Does that happen? I hope so. <laughs> nice.
1: Um, whether that happens or not we'll see you again in about a month and I um, what's our next book?
0: yeah so our next book chosen by the random wheel of chance was uh, is Octobriana and the Russian Underground by Petra Sadecki
1: let's go with that for now we'll we'll get back to you with an updated pronunciation and and, uh, a review of our findings in about a month
0: see you later bye bye
2: And so the story
1: goes, they wore the clothes, they said the things to make it seem improbable, the will of a lie like the hope it was.
2: Oh, we didn't get to put that story in. Oh, can you tell in? that story? Can you tell that story? It's fine. I mean, do you want me to tell yeah, that story? Yeah, we, that please, story?
1: please for the for the after dark.
2: <laughs> yeah, <For> the, <laughs> are you for the post credits? Yeah. Okay. Okay. This is slightly embarrassing, but your it encounter is a good
0: story. your encounter with story. Michael Shaven. Yes.
2: Yeah, so, um, years after I first read Wonder Boys, and I I had read Cavalier and Clay, Mysteries of Pittsburgh. I think I had read everything that he had written up to this point. So this would have been 2003, 2004. Um, he came and did a speaking engagement at Rutgers Camden. And he gave this really wonderful talk that was all about the value and importance of reading aloud, not only to children, but also to listening to read alouds as an adult. I love and how? Yeah. Which you know, I was completely on board with that as a yeah. lover of audiobooks um, and lover of stories generally. I thought, oh, yes, absolutely, completely on board with this. And um, he did a signing after the talk, which was lovely. And there was you know, a big line because it was a very enthusiastic crowd. And um, my friend Alice and I went with our husbands who – wisely just like stood in the back they were like we'll wait for you it's fine <laughs> yeah. uh, well, so she and i had copies of our various books um my and husband who, yeah, <laughs> exactly my husband and i had, had sent me a copy of wonder boys as a gift years before when we were dating and um Aww. i it was very sweet so because uh, he knew it was one of my favorite books and i didn't own a copy and um so i you know shyly yet enthusiastically brought it forward for Siobhan Bond to sign for me. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's my little pet name for him. I don't know if I mentioned that to you guys. Um, Siobhan Bond. <laughs> Siobhan Bond. Yeah. Um, so I presented it to him for signing. He immediately recognized it as um, the the British edition, and which amazed me. I thought well, For some reason, attention? that really impresses me. That really impresses me. Like, who pays attention? This is you know an internationally best-selling author, Pulitzer Prize winner, still has it filed away in his memory like what cover design goes with which market (laughs) wow that's that's an impressive level of attention to detail that I definitely appreciated so we had this little conversation and I told him that I was a librarian and he was like oh you guys are the real heroes yay (laughs) which you know only endeared him to me further and um somehow we managed to get out of there with our dignity mostly intact. <laughs> uh, but Just you know, short I'm, of
0: throwing your underwear on stage. Just
1: <laughs> short of that,
0: yes. <laughs>